What's good, everybody? This is your boy, Retro CG, and I would like to welcome you to the our channel, TSF Entertainment, and we also do our podcast, TSF Entertainment. So tonight, I am joined by my beautiful co-host, Miss Really BTV in the house. What's going on? What's up? What's up? Doing something new in the 2022, right? Doing something new. We're here. Here we are. <laughs> it's our new thing. That's it. So how was your week? It was good. Um, yeah. it was good. I'm doing a cleanse, so it's kind of stressing me, but I'm good. Okay, okay. Well, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. You get a lot of things accomplished this week. Uh, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. You know, it's that after you come back from the holiday break kind of thing. It's like you still a little yeah. But I'm good though. I ain't even gonna complain. We're supposed to be getting some bad weather this weekend, so I'll just gonna ride it out. It's gonna be oh my goodness. Weekend. Y'all getting snow? Snow and ice, they said. So we'll see what happens. Oh my <laughs> goodness. All right. Well, you know what it is. It's true crime Friday for us. So we're here tonight to talk about the case, the bizarre death of Mr. Jonathan Luna. Uh, you know, we always get stuck on these murder or suicide cases. So I'm gonna start off murder or suicide. Murder. Definitely murder. All right, give us a little backstory on the case. So Jonathan Luna, he was um, an attorney born in uh, Bronx, New York. He was, his mom was black and his father was Filipino. He um, went to school, went to, I know he um, went to Fordham College for his undergrad. He went to law school um, in North Carolina. And then his um, early law career started in Washington, D.C., and then he found himself at um, in Baltimore at the ADA's office, um, Assistant District Attorney's Office of Baltimore um, in 1999. And he was there for four years before his um, murder. Uh, he was married. He had, what, three kids, three or four kids? Two kids. Um, two kids. Oh, my bad. I gave him a whole bunch of other kids. But yeah, <laughs> he was, my bad. He was married. Um, and, you know, like I said, had two kids. And so... That's pretty much, you know, a little background there. You know, um, <clears throat> we've talked about this on other podcasts. Um, you know, I love for true crime, but most importantly, it's our uh, wanting to bring awareness to uh, persons of color um, and the fact that their cases uh, remain unsolved. They go unresolved. They don't get media attention. And for this to be a United States uh, assistant United States attorney, he's an AUSA. Mm -hmm. And you would think that there would be way more focus on solving this case and um, getting a resolution. Um, and I've read several different articles regarding the case, listened to several different podcasts regarding the case. But um, the smear campaign on him after his death, to me, it screams cover up. It, it, it screams cover up all day. So yeah. let's jump into the case itself. So the discovery of Luna's body came at uh, the close of a prosecution that he was currently working on for a violent drug trafficking organization. Luna had been prosecuting a, a Baltimore-based rap musician named Dion Lanell Smith and his one-time associate, uh, Walter Poindexter. They were accused of a drug ring um, and running a violent drug ring organization from their stash house records studio how appropriate 
Right. Um, <laughs> Stash House Records. <laughs> Stash House Records. Uh, Smith pleaded guilty to the distribution of heroin and the use of a handgun in the drug trafficking ring. Um, Poindexter pleaded guilty to three counts of distribution and conspiracy charges against him. Um, Smith and Poindexter, it's important to note that Smith and Poindexter were in jail at the time of Luna's death. So uh, it's 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 theorized that they weren't involved in his murder um, or subsequent death because they were um, incarcerated at the time. Their attorney, or Smith's attorney, um, Kenneth Ravenel, said it would make no sense for his client to be involved. Um, I think it would make a lot of sense for them to be involved since the prosecuting attorney was murdered. <laughs> so, you know, no case. Um, and the thing about that is that just strikes very odd to me is the fact that um, he was working on that plea the night of his murder and he just abruptly left the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the next morning, before his body was discovered, before he was uh, determined to be dead, another attorney at the U.S. Attorney's Office finished the plea. What was the whole... Uh, how did they know that he wasn't going to show up? It's, it's said that um, the previous day, the day before, he had showed up to court late, and um, he had a sick child or something that was um, at the hospital, and he had showed up uh, late for a case that he was uh, prosecuting the day before, and the judge had fined him. So maybe they were operating under the assumption that he was running late again. But it, it seems it strikes odd to me that they would finish the case, they would finish the plea before they even knew where he was, before well, they made an attempt to try to find where he was. Right, and that's what I was going to say because his phone records um at least the case that i listened to they never either they never got a copy of his phone records or that was never brought up but that to me would be a telltale sign because if he was expected to show up who called how much did they call what kind of voice messages did they leave on his phone and i know that that was 2003 but still like did you call his house did you call the cell phone like i i think because your point is valid like how did they not know? How did they know he wasn't coming? That they would finish up the plea without blowing his phone up. Now again, right. if they if they called and called and called and there was no response, I get it. This the show must go on. I don't know where he is. We got to get this done. But the phone records, I think, would have told us told the story. So it begins on Wednesday, uh, December the third. Luna was working on a plea bargain agre agreement for the two defendants in the drug trial that he was prosecuting. He left his office and went home sometime around 6 p.m., but returned to his office later that evening. So it's said that he received a call that night, and nobody knows who was um, on the other end, what the call was relating to, and why he decided to go back to the uh, office at 11 o'clock at night. Again, let's go back to the phone records, because you would think that the right. phone records would confirm who that caller was. Exactly. And, um, um, and that hasn't been released to the public. So um, that's a little odd as well. So he returned to the office later that evening, shortly before midnight, and uh, left on a bizarre midnight ride all over Lancaster County, Philadelphia, Delaware. Uh, 
his body had was discovered the next morning on December the 4th, around 5.30 a.m. He was found to be uh, stabbed 36 times and drowned. Apparently, he was face down in a creek in Lancaster County. Um, let's stop and talk about that before we break down this timeline. Um, what do you think brought him back to the office? So I think that there was a phone call um, because, you know, my whole theory, you know, my, my theory, but I think the phone call, whatever the phone call was, it lured him back to the office. Um, he was, was definitely probably, lured back to the office. Yeah, it was probably somebody he trusted. Maybe they were saying, because remember, he didn't finish the plea agreement. Maybe they, they alluded to the fact that um, his... Um, boss wasn't happy with him that they weren't happy about this plea agreement anyway so there may have been something where the, you know somebody lured him back to the office saying listen you need to get this done like this needs to be done tonight like you know something something convinced him to get out of his bed in the middle of the night and drive into the office and i as you know as somebody who has an employer there's only but so many things that's going to get me out of my bed and get me back in the office in the middle of the night and certainly a threat that something that I didn't finish that needs to be done, especially if I think my job is in jeopardy, could definitely, it could definitely do it. Now, I'm not saying his boss was involved in this. I'm just saying that that threat could have been there. It's funny you should mention the boss because him and the boss had a very uh, tumultuous relationship, to say the least. Right, right, uh, right. Him and his boss didn't get along, and it was rumored that the boss was ready to fire him. And it was also rumored that uh, Luna was ready to quit. So him and his boss had a very uh, confrontational type relationship. And um, there was also some speculation um, regarding some missing money in regards to a case, a bank robbery case that he had also been working on. And for some reason, um, I think it was about $68,000 totally total that they brought into the courtroom as evidence um, during the trial. 36. Well, well, it was it was sixty eight, but thirty six of it was untraceable, and that okay, is the one. Okay. That is the money that went missing. That's the money that went missing. Got gotcha, that's gotcha. the money that went missing. So uh, Luna and the FBI agent that was working on the case uh, thought it would be a good idea to bring the money to the trial as evidence to uh, you know further, uh, I guess, prove the narrative of the bank robbery of the um individuals that they were trying to prosecute so it's important to know that luna wasn't the only one that had access to this money it wasn't the only one that handled and had dealings with this money so it was between him and the other persons uh, particularly the fbi agent that was working the case uh who had access to this to this money but it's ironic that the $36,000 or 38, I think it's around about 38. There's so many different sites and podcasts that try to spin this narrative that it was 36,000 that was stolen. He got stabbed 36 times. So they're trying to coordinate this Make that whole narrative right. that, oh, he got stabbed behind the money. But I, I, I believe it was somewhere around the sum of 38,000 that went missing of untraceable money. Um, it is a bit suspicious that uh, during that time frame, he had applied for a thirty thousand dollar loan that he canceled. Canceled the loan. I'm going to say this, so I know I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but 
my theory of what happened connects to him being guilty of be, having something to do with that money. That money. Okay. Okay. I, I, I believe in that. I'm, not to kick dirt on the man, but I think that his death is connected to that money. Put a pin in that because after they combed over his financial records, the man only had about $25,000. Exactly. Exactly. And a majority of that was uh, spread credit out through card credit debt, cards so. and a student loan. I mean, he and owed less on a student loan than he like did on the credit cards. Right. You know, right. And but I'm gonna be honest with you. Took the money. Where is it? Right. What happened to it? But that's he didn't spend it. I'll give you my theory at the end, but my theory is connected to that too. But okay, okay, okay. So let's break down this timeline real quick because the timeline is just really strange. It's really bizarre, and cases like this intrigue me even more when a person who has no reason whatsoever to be in another state is found murdered in another state, and in this case. By all appearances, he went there on his own. Well, at the very least, he was in the vehicle. Right. Now, he I do have a... Whether he was driving or not. Correct. So, on December 3rd, 11.38 p.m., Luna's vehicle departs the U.S. Attorney's uh, Office in Baltimore. 11.49, Lewis' vehicle passes through Fort and Henry Tunnel uh, Toll Plaza in Baltimore on Interstate 95. So let's talk about this easy pass transponder. He had an easy pass transponder. Mm -hmm. He initially started out going through the easy pass. And for some reason, throughout the duration of the trip, he decides to switch over and start getting paper tickets. Why? I think um, I think somebody, whether it was him or somebody with him, didn't want want their their movements to be traced at a, at a maybe they didn't realize it at first maybe it slipped their mind and it was like oh shoot let's get rid of the easy pass you know what i'm saying but i think it was to not be traced okay all right 1228 luna's vehicle continues northbound and passes through the perryville toll plaza in maryland 1246 luna's vehicle passes through the delaware line toll plaza 12.57, let's talk about this. Luna's debit card is used at an ATM at JFK Plaza in Newark, Delaware. He withdraws $200. Mm -hmm. Okay. One o'clock in the morning, he decides to stop at the ATM and withdraw $200. Seems like an odd time to visit an ATM to pull out money. And that's significant amount. I mean, that's not ridiculous amounts of money, but that's a lot of money at one. Like, what are you doing at one o'clock in the morning with two hundred? That you need two hundred dollars for. Right. The only thing I could now, if we go down the, if we go down the road of, he was distraught over his job. He was kind of feeling some kind of way. That two hundred dollars could be for a hotel, and maybe he doesn't want that to be traced later on. He's gonna pay for the hotel in cash. You know what I'm saying? Like you go to a little no-tail motel, you can get a room for less than that, and you don't have to worry about anything being traced. That's if we're gonna go down the road of oh, he was distraught, and you know, or maybe that they're trying to paint the narrative that they found online profiles of him on dating sites. Yeah, but that was quickly debunked. I mean, because he was using his real name. Like, yeah, I, I mean, if anyone who's want to operate on anonymity and don't want their spouse to know that they're cheating on yeah, online dating site, not, not going to use their real name. name. Right. Yeah. 
So I, I, I agree with that full heartedly. I think that was I think that's part of the cover up the that smear you saw campaign that on his yeah, name. I think yeah. that was yeah, the smear campaign, the cover up. Yeah, I think that's part of that. Because who's using it? If you're che- it's one thing if you were a single man, um, and you were doing that, but who is cheating on their wife using their real name? Right. I mean, <laughs> like but could the two hundred dollars be used for paying for a sex worker? It could have been. Now that I didn't think I know you know what I never thought about that, but it could have been one o'clock in the morning, eighteen two hundred dollars seems a little odd. Yeah, but again, go I mean going back to the beginning, especially of the story, considering the fact that when he arrived in King of Pressure and stopped at the gas station, he used his credit card to purchase two tanks of gas, but had cash because he had just withdrawn the two hundred dollars. Right. So that seemed odd. He purchased two beverages. And two tanks of gas. If that doesn't speak to the fact that someone else was traveling with him, right? I don't know what else would. I mean, that right. is flat out confirmation and how convenient there's no surveillance footage of him at the right. gas station. Right. And then even when they say, Oh, well, he didn't seem like he was under any duress. But again, if you're with somebody that's threatening your life and they say, Hey, don't let on, don't tell nobody, we're gonna kill your wife, we're gonna kill your kids. Like, I mean, again, if he was. If somebody was with him and his life was in danger at that point when he was worried about his life being in danger and they stop at the gas station, all it takes is a quick, don't you say nothing. You're going to go in here, you're going to act like everything is normal. You know what I'm saying? If it was him that purchased the gas. Right. I mean, I don't, just because he didn't seem like he was under duress doesn't mean that it wasn't somebody with a gun in his head in the car saying, if you tell the police or if you alert anybody we're going back to baltimore and we're going to kill your family like you know it doesn't take i mean it's not it's not a a long way to go to say hey maybe somebody could get killed you know 237 he's um his vehicle is exiting the jersey turnpike um exit 6a on route 130 2 47 a.m luna's vehicle enters the pennsylvania turnpike um His debit card is used at a Sunoco gas station in King of Prussia to purchase gas. The two tanks of gas, I don't understand why that wasn't thoroughly investigated. I don't understand why they didn't seek out witnesses, if there were any. I mean, that is pretty late at night. I mean, we're talking about um, 3.30 in the morning. There's not going to be too many people out and about at a gas station um, at 3.30 in the morning. But you would think that the attendant would have remembered more about that incident, especially to me, that's something that would stand out to me. A person that that's kind of abnormal. A person normally doesn't come in and purchase two tanks of gas. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know, one tank of gas is understandable, but you have one vehicle, you can't pump two tanks of gas. Right. So what was the second tank of gas purchased for? It was purchased for another vehicle. Another vehicle that was either following them or they met up there because Again, that might have been a meeting spot too. I was gonna say again, no one, no one the geography of the area. I never thought about that. That could have very well been a meeting spot because it seemed like that specific gas station is uh, where he stopped at. You would have to imagine that he probably stopped along past other gas stations along the way. So maybe that was a meeting spot for the second car. Right, and and again, when just going back to what you were saying that he did like. 
that wasn't a straight shot. Like he he didn't go straight from Baltimore to King of Prussia. Yeah, it's, it's you don't get on a turn the New Jersey Turnpike and all that to get you're going around to get. Yes. There's an easier way of doing it, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like the way he did it was a lot harder than the way in two. It's even going back to 2003. I could drive from my house to King of Prussia and never come off of 95. So why the why well, the I can say never come off of 95, but yeah, but why the bizarre route? What do you think the reason for that was? Again, why the detour? again, it goes back to my theory. <laughs> okay, okay. So at four o four a.m., Luna's vehicle exits the Pennsylvania Turnpike exit two eighty six, and he's arriving in uh, Lancaster Exchange Interchange. Where the hell is he going? Is he lost? I don't think he's driving. I don't think he's driving at this point either. Because um, in the investigation, the ensuing investigation revealed that one of the toll tickets that was turned in had blood on it. But you would think, not, not all toll booths, but you have to imagine what this is, 2003. Maybe in 2003, we were still at the times where toll booths were manned. They were. Because I drove up and down. Not necessarily manned. Yeah, I can see that. The toll booths, the toll booths going up through Pennsylvania, um, that area, they were manned until maybe five, six years ago. I was thinking that too. Now they had the easy pass lane, but the other lanes, you still had people. You had an operator that handed you a ticket. Yeah, yeah. They didn't just go. Matter of fact, honestly, they didn't just go to all. Um, they didn't get rid of all of the people in the booths until maybe three years ago, maybe. Yeah, I don't have the exact year in front of me, but I know it wasn't that long. Still ago. come in contact with toll booths that actually have an attendant. They yeah. might not have one in all of them, but there's going to be one that has a cashier. Yeah. But back in 2003, it was definitely a cashier. Definitely yeah. that I can promise you that. But yeah. okay, so I'm gonna take it even further back, and I know we didn't mention this part yet, but the they, that his. His glasses were left his behind. Cell phone. So was his um cell phone. Yes. Now, in and 2003, his glasses. To yeah. Drive. It, in 2003, I'm gonna give you a pass on the cell phone because I don't think we, if I remember correctly, we weren't at a point where we were living with our cell phones back then. Like a lot of people could live without having their cell phone. Like it wasn't. A, I got you know nowadays if we run down the street to the gas station, we pick up our cell phone when we walk out the door. At that I don't point in life, it, it wasn't uncommon for you to leave your cell phone behind. Yeah, it wasn't a big deal to leave your cell phone. But yeah. you're, as somebody who wears glasses, as someone who is blind, I am telling you now, if I need my glasses to drive, especially at night, if I have a choice, I'm not walking there is out no the choice. without my glasses. There is no choice. There is no yeah. choice. Because I, I, mean, wear, I know, I know there's different wear, layers to we it. We sleep in our glasses. Exactly. I know it's different layers. There's no choice. But they said that he needed his glasses to drive. Mm -hmm. If you need your glasses to drive, especially at night, there's no way that he would have voluntarily left his glasses there. The only way I would say he did it is if, one, he was forced, like he, he was rushed and he didn't have time to pick his glasses up, or two, he left them behind as a clue to somebody to say, hey, this I know right. Jonathan wouldn't have left his glasses right, so he right. couldn't see. Okay. I've had a lot of thought about that as well. Us being glasses wearers, we have more than one pair too. True, but I feel like I, I I don't know. I feel like 
I feel like those were the glasses that he was wearing at the time. You're right. I have more than one pair, but I don't routine. I don't, and I'm not saying that I've never done it, but I don't routinely leave an uh, extra pair of glasses at work. I don't. Now maybe or, you not, do. or in my car, or in my car for that matter. Yeah. Now, now I, I mean, have now, extra pairs now, of glasses. Like, well, I, I will say this: I do have a set of prescription sunglasses that I keep I in do. the car. I do have a pair of prescription sunglasses in my car, and when I travel, I travel with the extra pair of glasses because just in, in case, case they break. I do do that, but just my regular day-to-day, and maybe I should now that I think about it, but in my regular day-to-day, I don't keep the extra pair pair of glasses in my pair that I wear. It's the pair that I wear, but as a glasses owner, we have more than (laughs) one pair of glasses. At home? (laughs) At home. (laughs) Yeah, at home. But that was very odd. He left his cell phone behind and he left his glasses behind. But here's the question. Who's to say that he was even driving when he left the courthouse? He may have been abducted there at the courthouse. He may not ever have even gotten a chance to get into his office. Now, I theorize that he made it to his office simply because the glasses and cell phone were found in his office. Yeah. So that means he made it there. But you're telling me this is a U.S. attorney's office? There's no cameras? In 2003... A uh, federal building doesn't have cameras. A federal bu- building doesn't have uh, key cards. I'm going to say this. I don't think they had the type of security that we have today. Yeah. However, there was something. But I think that's how they knew what time he left. Where is there no, where, where's security? But I think that's how they knew what time he left because they were very specific. 11.38. I mean, um, what time did they say he left his office? 11.38. Yeah, I think there must have been some sort of key card swipe or something. That's what I was thinking. That's a very specific time. So I think that there may have been some security there. But I, like nowadays, you know that you're going to have a camera on you from the minute you hit the parking lot to the minute you leave the parking lot. Everywhere you go, minus the bathrooms. And hell, they might have cameras in the bathrooms too, to be honest with you. Um, but everywhere you go, you know that you have a camera on you, especially on federal property. So nowadays, yeah, absolutely. But in 2003, I think in 2003 is when we were starting to upgrade a lot of that because, you know, 9-11 was 2001. So I think it was starting to be upgraded in a lot of places. Um, But clearly there was something because they know what time he left. Yeah. So Little's car, when his body was found, his car with the engine was idle. It was parked nearby. The $200 is now strewn about in the car. Huh. Which means that which means that it wasn't a robbery. There was blood on the driver's side uh, door in the fender, and a large pool of blood was found in the back seat on the floorboard. According to the police search warrant application and the affidavit, it also said that Luna had a traumatic wound to the side of his head. He's been attacked. He's been attacked. He's been accosted. He has been um, brutalized at this point. Right. To be stabbed, but here's the oddity about it, though. Here's the oddity about it. I still ultimately still lean on murder. But Absolutely. There's twists with this because who intends to murder someone with their own weapon? They're they're saying that he was stabbed 36 times with his own pen knife. Right. And a pen knife is basically a little pocket knife or whatever. Right. The reason he it was never really clearly made um or understood 
how often he carried his pocket knife. Was this a signature item that, you know, there's things that we always pick up uh, and mm -hmm. we put it in our pocket on a daily basis. You know, us smokers, we're going to get a lighter. You know, we're going to always drop our lighter in our pocket or in your case, your purse. Uh, there are things that we're going to have on our person that AirPods, you know, there's things that we're going to always have on your person. But a pocket knife is not something that you would seem to carry around all the time unless it was used for something. My theory, again, my theory of... If you, if you intend to murder someone, you come with a weapon. You I don't think that weapon. was the intent. I don't, I mean, I think I, there was something, okay, I, I, I agree. There was something that was powerful enough that kept him in that situation, driving around all night. There was something, whether it was a gun, whether it was the threat that maybe, maybe the person that was with him said, listen, we got a person on your house. Like they might not have had a gun, but they were like, listen, there's somebody sitting in front of your house. And if you don't do what we tell you to do, that's what's going to happen. Like I keep going back to his family because that's going to be, a, that's a man's biggest weakness. It's the, it's, it's his family. You know what I'm saying? Well, let's talk about this. Let's go back to the glasses for just a moment. <clears throat> If a person has poor eyesight, I seriously doubt that they would be able to comfortably drive that far that long without the aid of their prescription glasses. I don't so, think so. This is why I feel like he may have initially started out driving and maybe somewhere along the way was attacked during the uh, trip. Hence, that's why you have the pool of blood that was in the black back seat in the floorboard area. He's bleeding out. Um, not slowly dying because this pin knife is not enough to, uh, 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 you know, deep penetrating wounds. You know, some of the areas uh, that they say he was attacked, that was the upper neck and chest area. Um, there was a slash on the scrotum. Um, they, there, there's a lot of speculation that it was self-inflicted wounds. Um, and then there's been also reports that there was a stab uh, in the back of his shoulder, back of the middle of his back. Uh, and they're saying the corner is saying that it was in a spot where he he couldn't have reached to stab himself. Yeah, I mean, who? And if a person's going to commit suicide, why drive to another state to do so? Why do it in such a violent way? Uh, and the whole scrotum thing as a male, that's probably one of the most sensitive areas on your body. Uh, I don't think that you could have the 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 balls enough. No <laughs> Pardon the um, pun. <laughs> <laughs> to do that to yourself. I mean, you would have to be under extreme duress, uh, just a manic, uh, just having a psychotic moment at this point to do something like that to yourself. Uh, when there's so many other pain, painless ways to kill yourself um, or with less suffering. And if that's the case, why not just stab yourself to death and just bleed out of the car? The whole getting out of the car and laying face down in the creek, it seems odd. He's fully dressed. He's wearing a suit, an overcoat. His wallet, keys, identification is found on him. The $200 that he had withdrawn we're going to speculate that was the $200 that was found strong about in the car. Right. And why is it strong about in the car? Are you searching for something on his person that you were just running his pockets? But here's the question. The next day, King of Pressure at a mall 
his credit card was used. Now, there is speculation that he may have left the credit card at the gas station at night and someone else found it and used it. Obviously, that has to be the case because he was dead. He didn't use it in King of Pressure the next day. But that, to me, didn't seem like it was thoroughly investigated either. You know, I don't think that the, the killer or the person or persons that were with him took the credit card. I would take cash before I would take credit card. Mm-hmm. So if he took the money, do you think that it was... I'm going to tell you who I think killed him. I'm going to tell you who I think killed him. But um, I do believe it's related to the job. I do believe that it's related to the job. Maybe not necessarily the defendants that were in this case that he was uh, prosecuting, but I certainly think that it's related to his job. I mean, what's your thoughts? So you want my whole theory? Let's go with it. All right. Here's my whole theory. My whole theory is he was involved in the money that remember willingly willingly huh willingly or unwillingly i don't know but he was involved in the money coming up missing okay i remember he was supposed to take a lie detector test that he kept putting off yep so that was happening and i think that whoever he was in cahoots with i think that is who killed him now i can't give you the whole timeline of what happened or why it happened but i think that is I think that's who killed him. Um, I think that's how he was lured to his office because it's only but so many people that's going to get you out your bed in the middle of the night to go back to the office. It has to be something work-related. And it's important to know that he did hand. not finish the plea agreement that he was working on. He had already told the uh, defense attorney that he was going to fax it to him that night. And he didn't finish it. So you're right. There has to be some major motivation to stop working on this plea that you're already behind on and late mm-hmm. with. There has to be some type of motivation to move you to get up and go back to the office when you were already at home working on the plea. So it wasn't like you had to go back to the office to finish the plea. You were already at home working on it. Exactly. So there was motivation to bring him back to the office. Totally agree. But that's who I think it is. And again, so that's your theory. That's my theory. My my theory is they were either worried about and and the reason. So if I'm talking about why they were driving around, I think that maybe he was desperate. Um, about and I think that whatever the money was, is what they were driving around looking for. Maybe he knew where the money was, and he was by you know biding his time, and and maybe that's what all of that driving around was because. He kept, you know, saying, well, the money is here or the money is there or the money is there. Or trying to discourage the person to leave him alone. Right. Or trying, right. Or trying to talk his way out of it. Um, but I absolutely believe that that's how the night started. I don't think the night started with murder. I don't think, I don't, I think the pocket, like you said, the pocket knife was a weapon of convenience, not um, because again, it was his knife. So the person who was with them would have no way of knowing that there was a knife. Maybe there. could have picked it up out of the console in the car. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was. Um, he finally got fed up, and I, I mean, again, I, I, I can't answer the question about him having a gun or not because you're right. You would think that the person would have had a gun to even convince him to even get in the car with him and ride around all night. But 
I don't think he was driving the majority of the night. Um, I think that there was some back and forth, but I absolutely, and again, it goes back to what happened after the fact, like how they were really just doing anything to smear this man's name and, and just make this out to be, because you would think that uh, ADA, you would think that they would want to know, you know, what happened to him and we're going to leave no stone unturned. One of us has been murdered. But the fact that even the first medical examiner said murder and then they replaced him and got the second guy to say suicide. And I'm thinking, wow, like uh, we went from murder to suicide. And it's so obvious that like the reality, the, the thought that this is anything other than a murder, it's crazy. I told you, uh, so we share a very similar opinion on um, our theory of what's happened. Mine's got a little twist to it, though. All right. I do think that he was involved with the disappearance of that money. However, I think he was forced to take the money under duress. Uh, the person he was colluding with was not someone that he was willingly colluding with. He was being forced to. And I feel like it was the FBI agent that was on the case. I feel like it was the FBI agent on the case. It's also important to note that this FBI agent has been accused of misconduct, um, uh, coloring outside of the lines. Um, I think at one point they said that he was um, abusing and mistreating um, C. Or CIs, or confidential informants. This FBI agent had a very uh, uh, checkered history. So I think that, uh, and of course, he would know that this money was untraceable. Um, and it's convenient that the $38,000 that went missing was untraceable bills. I mean, who, be- who better else to know that other than the FBI agent working on the case? Mm-hmm. Um Jonathan Luna seems to be a very meek and um, very easy to get along with uh, individual and also looks like someone that could probably be forced into doing something against his will under the threat of harm to his family. So I do agree with you. I do share that opinion with you as well. I think the threats on his family started way before the night of his murder. I think that he was being threatened all along about this money. And he was probably told not to to take this lie detector test. And he was probably being threatened about taking this lie detector test. I think all of his movements up to his death was a direct result of what ended up happening to him on the that the night of his murder. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that the call that he received was from the FBI agent demanding the money. And I think for whatever reason, Luna had possibly hidden this money somewhere, uh, placed this money somewhere. I still can't put my finger on the whole $200 withdrawal. I think the whole purpose of the second tank of gas is to put gas in the FBI agent's car and for the FBI agent to be untraced as far as his movements without using his credit card, without being seen in public. I think uh, Luna was made to go purchase the additional tank of gas for the FBI agent's car so that he could remain uh, anonymous and hide under the cloud of anonymity. Uh, I think the second beverage was purchased for the FBI agent as well. 
And they were meeting up to either, I think Luna was probably under the impression that, you know, the FBI agent and him were going to confess or come clean about the money, maybe turn over the money. An argument ensues. Uh, a struggle ensues and he subsequently stabbed with his own pen knife uh, staged murder scene, crime scene, and left there for dead. Is what I believe that's happening. The FBI agent then reports back uh, somehow, some way, I think that maybe there was other attorneys at that uh, federal building that may have had knowledge of what was going on. There may have been a third party that was involved. There may have been a third party that was with them that night that knew that he wasn't going to be there the next day to finish the plea and finished it on behalf of him. And now... I find it interesting that the money was never recovered. Never recovered and never never used. So if Jonathan had the money, you would think that like you said, there was no there was no forensic trace of the money. They couldn't find it. Now they did find a $10,000 deposit that they couldn't trace. They didn't know yes. where that money came from, but it wasn't thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. Um. And again, that may have been his cut of the thirty thousand dollars. It could have been his cut of the thirty thousand. dollars Takes me back to my theory that it's possible a third person involved: ten for the FBI mm -hmm. agent, ten for Luna, and ten for the unknown third party. Right, and it just seems to me a lot for ten thousand dollars, but I think it's more about. He's not in private practice either. I was getting ready to say, but then again, as an attorney, that's uh, if he was a defense attorney, then I could see the ten thousand dollars deposit because I mean, you know, clients pay attorneys in cash all the time, so especially on high profile cases. But then he's not uh, in private practice either, so right, ten thousand dollars does seem a little. Oh yeah, ten thousand dollars wouldn't have been a big deal if right if he were in private practice or he was um a defense attorney or whatever. But yeah, working for you know um the state, you ain't just getting walking around getting ten thousand dollars. But again, it's I don't think at this point it's about the money. I think yeah. it was about their freedom potential, potentially going to jail and losing their jobs. You know what I mean? Yes. So we had to silence our threat. And right. He was a threat. Um. I think that it's a little um I think it's bad that the FBI didn't stand behind him as he is a federal employee <laughs> makes that uh one of the situations that the FBI would heavily be involved in in trying to solve his case and put up a reward and um investigate this case but they instantly closed the door and say it's murder it's suicide he killed himself he stole the money but why not try to recover the money like so thirty thousand dollars just disappears in thin air and nobody knows what happens to it and nobody's financial records show any of this money being spent it's 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 a murder it's a murder it's a murder it's a state the fbi was happy that they could just say well he did it or we suspect and we can't prove it but we suspect that he did it and we're just gonna walk away from it I feel sorry for his wife and um, at the time his two small kids, which they are adults now. Um, but and a lot of families are very quiet. Um, not everyone's family is public when um, these type of things happen. You know, they grieve in their own way and they handle things in their own way. But his wife and family has never publicly spoken about their feelings and thoughts on the case. And they've never been involved. And we've covered a lot of cases where the family member has been instrumental 
involved in sometimes um, being too instrumental. <laughs> yes, you know, they're all over social media, they're all over message boards, they're on podcasts, they're on YouTube. Uh, I just find it odd. I mean, what, what was the wife? She was an obstetrician. Do you think that they're being do you think that maybe they were threatened to not say anything? I mean, what do you I think? I just find it odd. I mean, this is a working professional. And um, they had relatively what seems to be a very happy life, a happy marriage, two small kids. Uh, I think she what, was an obstetrician. She was an obstetrician. I think maybe. I don't remember. Yes. So I don't know. Maybe because she just didn't want to be publicly known or associated with what was going on. Part of her maybe being embarrassed about the whole $30,000 being missing. But this ain't the first case where we haven't covered, but... We haven't covered the other one, but this is the first case, and that's new developments in that case. And I've been pondering whether or not we want to cover this case simply because the suspect that's in custody now is a person of color. You know, I kind of have this underlying rule that I want to cover cases of person of color, and that's simply because there's just not enough attention and awareness being brought to uh, people of color. But, um, you know, in the case with Roger Dean, um, there has been an arrest made in that case. And that's a cold case from 1985 that they actually uh, found a suspect for who was a black man. But in that case, there was $32,000 that went missing. Um, so a lot of times when large sums of money are involved, there typically ends up with murder involved. So you have to ask yourself the question, is this person involved? Just because a person was involved in committing a crime doesn't mean that they were always a willing participant. So there may be some, there may be some, there may be some truth to the thought that his family may have been threatened. You know, mm-hmm. well, this was a, a bizarre case. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, I'm still and it's going. definitely a cold case. Like I don't even, and I didn't read it's or horrible because yeah. authorities found traces of blood from a second person, but there has never been any publicly released information regarding any DNA, any type of physical evidence. And you would think that a a stabbing would leave behind physical evidence because your hand's bloody, your hand's slippery. It slips on a knife. Uh, Were there any hair fibers, fingerprints, or anything found? There had to be other evidence in that car. If if someone had been in that car, if a struggle had taken place, there had to have been something else in that car. They said that they feel like he had defensive wounds on his hands. Where and the wound on his head. Fingernails. Were they, was there any other hair in the car other than his? Was it, you know what I mean? Like you said, they found some other blood. So there had to have been somebody else in the vehicle. If they what found about the office? What blood. about his office? Did you guys um, get any evidence out of his office? Any fingerprints? Any DNA? Anything? You know? Uh, and here's here's another thing I wish that, uh, and, and this could be information that is um, not released to the public for a reason, but for a case that's closed, for a case that's been ruled as a suicide, you would think that all details would be public. But I think there are laws regarding, um, uh, in your, where in the state of Maryland, I want to say, I think there's laws regarding uh, evidence not being uh, released uh, for active investigated case or whatever the case may be. I read that somewhere, but here's a major question that I have. Did you find two beverages in the car? Because he purchased two. Were there two found in the vehicle? Were there two? Was that soda bottle and that water bottle in the vehicle? Hmm. Hmm. 
you found the two hundred dollars that wasn't spent, and that's another thing. You can't you you have to rule out robbery as a motive. He didn't just randomly meet this killer. This person traveled with him from Baltimore to Lancaster County. This person traveled with him, or at the very least, met him along the way of this trip. So he wasn't robbed by just this random person. A lot of people theorize that he ran into whoever the person was that killed him that night at the gas station. And that person ended up carjacking him or attacking him at the gas station or robbing him at the gas station. There's no robbery involved. Now, he may have had other cash on him beyond the $200, but nobody's going to stab someone 36 times and spend that much time with you. That's almost like a crime of passion, the 36 times. Right, right. That's that's what I'm saying. I don't think... I think And leave $200 cash. Yeah. Right. And it, it was, you know, strewn around the car as if there was some sort of struggle. struggle. I don't know. I just think... I think the pen knife was a, a weapon of convenience. Um, maybe there was a gun. Maybe... Maybe um, Jonathan got the gun away from the person, but the person ultimately won the won the won the fight with the knife and was able to pick up his gun and leave the scene. And that's the other thing. How did how did was it three people like the second tank of gas? The second tank of gas is definitely definitely for another vehicle. There is no if ands or buts about it. So is that is that how you think they got away? Yes. I think that there was a person that traveled in the car with Luna and at some point during the trip drove his car. And I think there was a second vehicle. Well, excuse me. I think there was another vehicle that was following them to. And then let's talk about the uh, where they found him at. Because where they found him at was uh, the next morning there was some uh, construction workers. I think there was construction work being done nearby. And they saw the lights from his car in the distance and walked up to see what it was. And that's when they discovered his body uh, or the scene itself. But it was a very, you had to know where this place was type area. You know, mm -hmm. for a person who's traveled all the way from Maryland, to this unknown remote destination is not, I know where this place is. It's not a place of familiarity to this person. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that uh, off road somewhere, somehow maybe the person that killed him was in the vehicle with him and walked back to the road because they were to not have any tire tracks left behind, walked back to the road and got in the car and they left. And I think at that point, they had either threatened him enough, attacked him enough, wounded him enough, where he had finally given up the location of the money, the $30,000, the $38,000. And after they got that information, it was enough to leave him for dead. And that whole scene was staged to make it look like he killed himself. And now let's go collect this $38,000. And now let's commence to smearing his name and making him look like he was a guilty party. Exactly. You know, my heart goes out to him and his family. Um, and he seems like a very uh, promising individual. He worked so hard to uh, overcome his obstacles from his upbringing, from um, coming up in a, uh, I'm not going to say a poverty-stricken, but maybe a, 
uh, kind of, um, you know, struggling situation seems that came from uh, working parents. You no, know, he came from the Bronx in the 80s. I don't mean no harm, no disrespect to people from the Bronx. The struggle but was real. The likelihood that the struggle was real is high. Yeah. <laughs> There's a high probability. And to make it as a, a, a United States assistant attorney, that's, that's very big. You know, and to have worked in uh, New York and Baltimore in the legal system, those are rough areas. Those are rough areas for him to have had a uh, lasting career, um, especially as a prosecuting attorney. He didn't have an easy job. He did mm -hmm. not have an easy job. Um, so ultimately, my theories and my thoughts are he was murdered. Um, so I guess that's going to wrap up this case, unless you have any other thoughts and theories you want to put out there on it. No, I mean, if anybody out there knows anything, heard anything, any up, any updates to the case, because that's what I was going to say. Like, I haven't heard anything about any updates to, mm -mm. to the case. No, this case is cold. It's cold as ice. It's cold. And that's another reason why, for me, it's important for us to bring awareness to these cases, because... If it wasn't for YouTube and it wasn't for people like us that do podcasts and YouTubes and lives and things like these cases, you would never hear about them again. You would never hear about them again. In 2003, I didn't even hear about this case. I live in the area and I, don't, I didn't hear it. And I was living here it. when it happened. I'm not saying it wasn't on the news, but I don't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that's the real sad part about it is, is our life matters. And it's for us to make it matter. You know, it's people like us that bring awareness and um, uh, some sympathy and some justice for the family and for the victims themselves. So you matter to us. So for us, we want to um, bring awareness to these type of cases. So we're going to do True Crime Fridays. You know, maybe we can get the rest of the team on here. You know, we'll talk about a case. Maybe we can get them on here. Uh, there's a couple of cases that we've talked about in the group chat. They've got kind of a little fired up about. So maybe we can get the fellas on here. We can talk about some other cases. Of course, we want to do some other things. Maybe we can get you on here to talk about some sneakers. <laughs> maybe we can get you on here to talk about some sneakers or whatever. Okay. Hold since, I'm enjoying, since I'm enjoying my Christmas gift from you. <laughs> since I'm enjoying my Christmas gift from you. Um, maybe I was going to say, I was wondering if that was, I was going to say that book. Is that the book? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Uh, maybe we could get you on here to talk about some sneakers and stuff, and you know, so we we'll a short conversation, but okay. It'd be a conversation. <laughs> well, you know, you've been trying to get us up on here for a minute to talk about our frustrations on Nike and how we yes, can purchase green yeah. shoes. Thank God for um, StockX and Goat. Thank y'all because if it wasn't for y'all, we wouldn't get our shoes. And as you can see, some of us like sneakers, mm. but some of us don't like um, not. This raffle system and these bots that another story. No, just, just let it go. Let it go. Let another it go. day. Another, <laughs> there's another day, another, another time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're gonna definitely be doing some more things. Um 2021 was great for us. We we covered a lot of cases, we covered a lot of shows. Uh we just started back up with book two last Sunday, power book two. Ugh, God, I hate that show. Um uh, but we'll definitely be here for Forrest. Uh, we'll definitely be back for Raising Canaan. We're definitely going to be here for P-Valley. Um, There's some other things that we're going to be talking about. Um, of course, you know, we got Really B TV in the house. You know, she does it all. 
Uh, we got uh, Juggernaut of Souls. He does sneaker reviews. So y'all want to go ahead and follow and check him out. Uh, check out the TSF Entertainment YouTube page. You know, we started out with the whole music thing, but now we're going to be doing uh, lives and um, YouTube and other podcasts. So you never know what's going to come out of the TSF Entertainment camp. So we just appreciate those who've been uh, patient with us and who's been following us uh, for the last few years. Uh, we've been around for a little while, you know, but, you know, our real life gets uh, in the way a lot of times. So uh, let's just see what comes up next. What you got, CP? That's it. Um, just like I said, be on the lookout. Where to find you at? Huh? Tell these folks where to find you at so they can I'm follow not, and subscribe. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. You, you going there? Okay. I'm just, I was just saying, you know, be on the lookout of some things we do. Definitely have some things planned. And yes, you can find me at Really BTV, the way it is spelled right there on YouTube. <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Really BTV underscore on YouTube. So, yep, check me out. All right, so I guess we'll be back here Sunday to talk about uh, what? Uh, Power Book 2? Yeah, yeah, we'll be here. We'll be here on Sunday. All right, yep. we'll see you All right. All right, peace. This program is brought to you by TSF Entertainment Podcast.